0: We are proud to share pharmacist Stephen Dixon's presentation of the history and pharmacology of LDN at the LDN Research Trust's 2019 conference.
1: So just for those of you who don't know, Nortrexone that we hear about is based very similarly on Naloxone. It's an analogue of that, been around for a very long time. It's been on the WHO uh, essential medicines list for over half a century now. It uh, binds to receptor group called the G-protein-coupled family of receptors, which means that one input or one block or one action or one key, if you're thinking about it that way, can have a multitude of different actions. So that's things like the glucagon receptors, the TLR receptors, the beta adrenergic. Just by one molecule attaching in different ways in different concentrations and potentially different times, you can have a, a, a functional outcome that's very different. Um, specifically, if you don't know about opiate receptors yet, then what are you doing here? But actually, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just in case. So we have agonists, and that's like morphine. We've got partial agonist, that's like buprenorphine. And you've got an antagonist, and that is basically naltrexone, naloxone, and nalmephine. So the the history and the the pharmacology of LDN are are quite interesting. Um, If you're downloading this slide at home, there's a very, very interesting little slide you can zoom in on there that tells you all about it. But basically, um, the way that naltrexone works um, in blocking the uh, euphoric effects of opiates is that when you are exposed to exogenous opiates, for example, morphine, um, morphine, heroin, etc., Um, you can give naltrexone and it competes for the same receptors and blocks the effect of that drug. So that's the very basics of it. So if you look up the pharmacopoeias, that's what it says it does. But actually, the morphine and exogenous opiates that we have are actually analogues of endogenous opiates, and we call those endorphins largely. So when you give... Um, naltrexone um, uh, regularly in a full dose it reduces your sensitivity to all opiates so it blocks this whole pathway including your own natural endorphins so actually what you can find is that naltrexone was originally used for addiction because it blocked the effect of the exogenous opiates and allowed for the body to recover and for the receptors to go back to normal reducing addiction but actually, what we discovered in the last sort of 10, 15 years is that naltrexone, like a great number of other drugs, is not completely selective. Selectivity means it doesn't do exactly what you expect it to do once you put it in the population. So often, if you think about amitriptyline, gabapentin, pregabalin, they started off for one mechanism, and we're using them for all sorts of different things now. Just exactly the same for naltrexone, nothing really new there. Science improves, and clinicians like yourselves spot them, oh, that's doing this, and then we actually elucidate what to do with that. But one of the most interesting things, is that, and if you've seen the slide before, I apologize, but um, drugs are chiral, they're three dimensional. So, about maybe seven or eight years ago, there was a really huge push on drug companies trying to make extra money by ripping out the, the dextro or the levo antiomer of their drug and calling it a new drug because licensing allowed for that. Um, now, that's because in humans, basically, the levo, um, sort of left-handed molecule fits into receptors in our body in a very similar way to the, the endogenous compounds that we have. So you, stripping out the racemic, the dextral, often meant that you had a pure molecule with fewer potential side effects. Because in human, in human beings, often, or, or mammals, the, the, the right antimer, which is the dextro molecule, may not do what you're expecting it to do, but it also may have some effects of its own. So, and different isomers, because even though they are chemically the same, they're shaped differently, so they can have different targets. So overall, um, and when you have naltrexone that we're using today, it's a 50-50 called racemic mixture. basically means when it's synthesized, half of it's left-handed, half of it's right-handed. So, in LDN, we're using it far lower doses than, than we do for addictions, but you can still see precipitated withdrawal. So this, this mechanism of action that we know from the Levo anti is still working. It binds onto these endorphin receptors that we talked about, that are the natural endogenous opiates that we produce to make ourselves happy and to regulate homeostasis, the immune system, and all sorts of other things. But we find out that also LDN in this dextral molecule, and there's a lovely paper which is at the end of this, shows that the dextral molecule binds to, the, to a group of receptors called TLR. Hands up if you've heard, heard of TLR. Ah, great. Okay. Right. So don't have to explain that then. You can talk to each other. <laughs> But, we've, but there's a few, couple of really interesting things. Endorphins that are innately produced by the human body, so by yeah, whenever you have a happy event, whenever you're feeling positive, are natural immunomodulators, are generally anti-inflammatory. So I was talking to someone just recently, in fact last night, I don't know if she's here... But she said, well, you're know, taking LDN could potentially be like having intercourse three times a day because of the level of, of endorphins that are getting released. And we'd had a good laugh at that at uh, 1 o'clock this morning. But, I mean, actually, it's, it's stuck in my head because actually the, um, the, uh, the endorphins that are being released are being released in a very similar way, and it doesn't really matter how you get those. But the TLR receptors that we talked about are part of the innate immune system, and that means there's two different ways that naltrexone can modulate the immune system. If you haven't heard of Ian Zagon, then Google him. Um, He's been looking at endorphin research for a very, very long time. There's 30 years of research. He has written a myriad of papers. A lot of them are quite impenetrable. If you try to read them, they're very detailed, but incredibly good science. We know that the use of endorphins does cause a reduction in inflammation. So when you look at the immunological effects of naltrexone in experimental models, you can see benef- benefits in wound healing, MS, ocular surface disease. There are some pharmacists who are making sterile eye drops, which um, we're not in the UK because it's a bit too difficult um, because of the regulation. But there's incredible papers in Crohn's disease. We're seeing people using in pancreatic cancer. I see one of the pioneers at the front here, uh, breast cancer. You know, We're seeing r- results of this. And, and, and the list is constantly growing, and it's because of this, this the different effects that we're expecting from LDN than you, do, than you get from the licensed form. So as I was sort of hinting at earlier on, this racemic mixture of naltrexone, um, can I point? Oh, I can. Look at that. Okay, so this racemic mixture of naltrexone has the Levo, which is a potent antagonist and blocks these opiate and endorphin receptors, whereas the dextro has a blocks, um TLR9 And we'd be able to elucidate that quite well. And that's the start of the immune cascade. The thought being that this TLR receptor system is being overstimulated by either an endogenous molecule that's floating about in the body after a disease or after some sort of autoimmune event that's caused that to happen constantly. And by blocking that as well as um, releasing extra endorphins, you are totally dampening down the immune response. Everybody with me so far? Yes, good. Nobody's fallen asleep yet, which is good, which is positive. Um, So one of the reasons that I find this so interesting is that because of this general anti-inflammatory effect, naltrexone appears to be able to do so many different things, but really it's working through the same mechanism. So chronic pain has an inflammatory component, as does a number of CNS disorders. You, know, you will probably, I think, if, uh, if I'm right, I think we'll hear from an oncologist later on who will define cancer pretty much as an inflammatory disease, uh, and we know that autoimmune diseases are all, are all inflammatory-based. So it sort of makes sense why you can use it in this wide frame. And it, but the, when you first start looking at all the things we're using LDN for, it does feel a bit like a sort of medical drug, uh, you know. but only once you start to understand what it's doing. So there's some slides here which you can download and have a look at later on, but basically sort of explains what's happening in each individual scenario for chronic pain, for your dopaminergic release, and in cancer. I'm sure that we'll go into that a bit later on. If you want to have a look at the slides, you can sort of elucidate from there. Um, There's some great papers which I've got on the slides as well, which you can download and have a look at, um, which haven't changed much. We, again, have updated our um, consultation requests that we've done over the last year, and we're now looking at still the majority of MS patients um, with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia following quite quickly behind rheumatoid arthritis and um, Lyme disease are not far away from there. But it just shows you the incredible range of diseases that we're seeing responses to. Um, we've updated this with people who have had more than three repeat prescriptions. So that tells you someone's taking it for longer than sort of six months. So just to touch on some clinical practice guidelines, if I've got time. Have I got time, Mark? How am I doing? Yes, okay. I'm talking very, very quickly, and talk- I'm glad that we're getting there. So clinical practice guidelines as a as a physician, um, when you're looking at um, chronic pain, what we've learned is that you withdraw other opiates very gently. Um, there's a drug called Nefepam we use in the UK, but non-steroidals can be useful. Acetaminophen is often underused when you're withdrawing painkillers, and then review the whole use of what they're, um, of what they're actually taking. So is the standard therapy actually optimal before you start sticking LDN in there? Because there's no point in not standardizing what you're using based on the best best medical evidence possible. But if you don't get any response from LDN after three months in chronic pain, really it's probably not going to do very much. And the patient's going to start taking opiates again, and and it's challenging. An important thing that we've learned um, over the last few years, especially in the last sort of two years, really, when there was a presentation at one of the conferences talking about PTSD, talking about anxiety, talking about using LDN for psychiatric disorders, that leads to many more patients wanting it. The issue with that is we really feel that you shouldn't be treating somebody for... uh, an anxiety condition or a a psychiatric condition unless they are under care of a specialist but also they've been stable for a while before you stick LDN and and add it in because you don't then know whether or not it's part of the um, whether it's part of the whole um, uh, disease progression so and managing things like expectations are very important so has anyone in the room used LDN for Parkinson's patients yes there's quite a lot so It seems to have a positive effect on mood. It seems to make them feel better, but it doesn't seem to do very much for the disease progression. But I don't know if that's probably enough to give them it. That seems to be what we're experiencing. Maybe I'll be told differently by somebody else. But managing the expectations, because people will have looked up the Internet and will be, be, oh, this is going to cure my MS next week. You know, it's going to cure my Crohn's disease in two days. These are things that we've got to be careful of that we don't overpromise. Where your local area or your your government body or your approved body has a tool that you can use to, to give the person the number. So, for example, in anxiety, we use something called the HAD scale. You know, we'll ask a certain number of questions, and then they get a number. Well, today you're a 17. But well, when you see them again in three months' time, you know, you've been taking LDN. Are they now a 17 or are they lower? And low, you know, in our case, lower is better. Um, we find that in CNS disorders, you can increase um, sort of one milligram weekly up until you get to about 4.5. In cancer, it's important. There's a lot of people talking about cancer today, so I won't touch on this very much. But basically, if you are a clinician working in general practice and you're not connecting with the oncologist who is treating this patient and not telling them what you're doing, you probably want to rethink how you're approaching that or making sure that the patient actually does talk to their oncologist, primary oncologist, about it. That's not only for their benefit, but it's also to let the oncologist know that if it works, it might not have been what they did. You know, it's important for us to feed that back. Um... But actually, again, it's all about this ethical consideration of should we be sticking LDN into someone who actually there might be a new immunological drug, there might be something that's actually got a licensed clinical trial behind it. You know, have they tried everything that's actually standard before going into you know unlicensed and special compounded medication? And I'm saying that really because you know, I, th- I think we're slightly more regulated in the UK uh, than, than you guys are in this sort of field. But uh, for us, it's a a very specific consideration with some guidance that's been given out very recently by our regulatory bodies, stating very clearly that we shouldn't be going off book into something that's unlicensed until you've explored the standard options. Dead, really important in cancer, you would have thought. So there's some dosing uh, information with cancer. We are tending to use LDN a lot with cannabinoids. Um, The dose of, of cannabinoids is using pure cannabidiol, uh, 50 milligrams, three days on, three days off, or some sort of variation thereof. Sometimes, depending on the weight of the patient, we increase or decrease that. Um, the, in, there's a really nice paper in glioma for brain cancer that uh, was completed by GW Pharma, but was never published. Uh, not quite sure. Maybe Gus might talk a wee bit about that later on. But so you can look at using uh, THC as well in some patients with glioma because there is good evidence to show that it's not going to be negative. Um, so as we all know, you can, you can sort of take some opiates along with at the same time as taking LDN, but you really want to with- withdraw the um, fast, sorry, the slow-release ones and keep them for breakthrough pain and give a window of a gap. Explaining that to a patient can be quite challenging because often you say, oh, you're going to have to be off your painkillers, you have to be off your opiates, and that's a barrier to people getting into uh, trying LDN. Uh, so having a conversation that's very frank with them about you know, reducing their usage you probably find that the majority of people who are taking chronic opiates are actually taking the chronic opiates because they have pain caused by taking chronic opiates. So again, one of the reasons I'm here today is to learn about ULDN and the ultra-low-dose LDN because that's where I think that could be really useful and we have not explored that in any great depth in the UK yet. But I guess you guys have got a bit more experience in that. In autoimmune diseases like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and Hashimoto's, we find that the response can sometimes be very, very fast. So we tend to to say reduce how quickly you titrate up from 0.5 every couple of weeks if the patients start to get side effects such as feeling like fluey or tired or feeling very hyperactive or jittery, then you drop the dose back down to half and continue as before but again, those are the patients that you need to worry about. Now, in Hashimoto's, we do sometimes find that people go with thyrotoxic um, quite quickly, so again, making sure you're interfacing with their primary care physician so that they're having the, re- the adequate tests required. Now, one thing we've discovered is a lot of people are taking their standard therapy from their GP, but they're also topping up with they're topping up with natural thyroid they're topping up with things that their their own GP doesn't know about so in Hashimoto's it's becoming more and more evident that you have to have a bit more of an in-depth conversation with patients so that you don't um, cause them any harm historically um, MS uh, we've seen that diseases can can seem to present worse symptoms in the first two to three months no one really has elucidated why if someone wants to explain it to me then that would be great but actually telling them about that is quite important um, there's all the other things that you can add in. You can do tests for CRP. You can do all the sort of normal things that you do. Just because you're putting them on LDN doesn't mean you shouldn't look at doing some of the standard testing and following that up. But don't do everything at once. So often we'll see a physician has seen a patient that's had a great consultation, and the patient is turning up with a prescription for five different drugs that have all to start at once. How on earth is that patient or any of the other people in the team, how are they supposed to know if any of that worked? Because you started it all at once, so do do things stepwise, one at a time, and do it carefully. So, I guess from, from my perspective, um, we've seen a number of different administration methods. So, when I first started doing LDN um, and ca- coming to these conferences, people were making capsules generally, and that was it. So, we now have you know with the capsules that have always been there. There's tablets now, there are liquid formulations, there's sublingual liquids, there's wafers, which I'm excited to go and see. There's something like a gel tab that is under the tongue now. You know and we have found that the method of administration does seem to matter in some patients. So people who can't tolerate a capsule... Um, can often take it sublingually, and it does have a benefit for them. So they can avoid some of the first-pass metabolism, we think. Um, Potentially, it might be irritating to the stomach. So if you have a patient who complains of stomach cramps or feeling headaches, etc., trying the sublingual route is potentially beneficial as well. But finally, when not to start LDN. This is sort of important, you know. When to say no, no, you can't have it just now, come back in three months. If they've just started something else, then that's a bad idea you wouldn't believe the number of times the phone rings as a patient wants a consultation for LDN and they've just started an anti-TNF you know and you're like well or they've just started sulfasalazine or they've just started something which is already a t- quite an interesting drug in itself we would say under no circumstances should general physicians be prescribing it for prophylaxis of absolutely anything there's a couple of people are published again talking about LDN saying that it it works great when your immune system is damaged or not functioning properly, or you have a disease profile, but what it would do to somebody who doesn't have a disease profile already, we don't know. So again, why would you be prescribing for prophylaxis? I'm probably going to get shot for that, by the way. I can see some evil looks coming from the audience. But but when you've got um, somebody with LFTs or renals that are weird... Um, definitely, don't do it. And again, the risk of giving anything an um, immunomodulator to uh, someone with an organ transplant is uh, a very bad idea. Um, but also, when uh, the one the reason a complete no for us is when the patient cannot give consent or adequate consent, and that includes most children.
0: Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, Linda, L I N D A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.